Welcome to Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions, the place to learn how to fund, scale, exit, and massively profit as an angel investor or entrepreneur. Brought to you by the Angel Investors Network. And now, here's your host, Jeff Barnes. All right, welcome everyone. This is Jeff Barnes with Angel Investors Network, and this is the Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions podcast. I'm really excited to have you guys here today and to be talking with our guests Right now, we are all self-quarantined in our own individual office as the coronavirus, COVID-19 implementation strategies continue. We'll be talking a little bit about that and what that means for entrepreneurs, the economy, and investing in general. But before we get into that, Iraq, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, my friend, and excited to be uh, staying healthy and, (laughs) and hopefully helping other people to do the same. Yep, absolutely. And it's, it's kind of funny because this is the longest I have been home and I can't remember when, and nothing on the, the docket for the foreseeable future at this point with all the travel bans and everything, all the events that have been shut down. So, um, you know, bittersweet, of course, we don't want anything to spread any further, but yeah, you know, I, I really do miss seeing people. So it's good to be on a podcast. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when uh, when this blows over and the mass entry back into the, into the event space and connecting socially. Um, be woodstock so. across the globe. Yep. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. Well, with that being said, you know, I want to go ahead and introduce our, our guest today because this gentleman has had a very illustrious career living in the Bay Area, working in the Bay Area and traveling all over the world, doing a lot of interesting and cool things in the tech space. So Dinesh, Dinesh Gaba is a serial tech executive, entrepreneur and investor. All throughout his career, he's been investing in real estate, oil and gas, angel investing, distressed properties, and so on, learning the ins and outs of investing and how to create wealth for himself long-term, as well as how to create wealth as an entrepreneur. In addition, he's come up with some pretty cool ways to save some of that money through uh, tax strategies and um, different ways of preventing the government from getting more than what they need and deserve. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that today. So Dinesh, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Uh, well, you know, I gave a very brief overview of your career, your path. Could you maybe just spend just a couple of seconds or a couple minutes here and explain to people how you got to where you are today, you know, quarantined in the Bay Area? Uh, sure. Well, I grew up in Dubai and came to uh, UT Austin for my engineering degree in the mid-90s. And then from there, I started working in the tech tech space, started off in software and embedded systems, and then moved on from there into semiconductor and video technology. I moved into moved to the Bay Area from, from Austin, pretty much uh, right at the point when the entire tech bust happened, <laughs> right about probably two months before that, and um, went through that whole cycle and uh, learned a lot, you know, was part of different uh, tech companies that, you know, went through a bunch of acquisition rounds, you know, we were acquired, then we were sold again, then I was part of another startup that I um, invested in. And then that startup got acquired back in 2012. And so it's been a fun ride. And so after that, after getting out of the last uh, startup, uh, I just started to get more involved in investing on my own and just uh, working on a lot of personal development and just helping, trying to find ways to help myself and help others and mentor others and just grow my own set of income streams to just diversify. Because I, I realized that, you know, once when I was in tech, it took up so much of my energy. I didn't really have time to explore much outside of that. So I, 
I kind of enjoyed the time off uh, for a few months to be able to look outside of just tech. You know, ended up starting another, helping start another business in the environmentally friendly and then eco space, really. Uh, we created some products to help wash cars with less than a cup of water and, uh, you know, learned a lot about that industry. And, you know, just basically been 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 doing that and just staying uh, educated on what are some of the newer industries and opportunities and some of the problems that, you know, can be solved with disruptive technology. So that's something that's of personal interest to me. And then a lot of stuff in the health and wellness space as well, just being, you know, part of my personal development journey. Um, you know, I had a pretty serious car accident about a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's been a journey for me to recover from that. So, you know, it's work in progress and uh, I'm, I'm constantly learning every day. And here I am. So. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you were able to make it through the accident and uh, come out better on the other side. And of course, we all like to know that we're going to be healthy at the end of something like that. But going through it, I can't imagine it was very much fun. No, uh, it was a definitely a, a huge challenge to overcome. Learned a lot about uh, myself and and just you know how to get through stuff like that. So it was uh, definitely a painful but growing experience, and uh, you know taught me a whole other level of gratitude. So I wouldn't like to wish that on anyone, but you know, unfortunately, sometimes that's the kind of stuff that it takes to to go back to the basics, and you know. Um, that brings me back to the current time. And, you know, I'm kind of relating this time to when I had to recover from my accident. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about what you put your attention on. And uh, right now, it's very easy to start panicking and start, you know, putting your attention on the wrong stuff and overthinking the future. But, you know, I think one of the things that I learned from my experience 18 months ago is that, you know, just focus on the day, just take it a day at a time, because at this, at that time, it, I had the same experience. It was unknown. I didn't know how long it's going to take me to recover, and uh, how much I'd recover. And you know, I wasn't able to walk for about three and a half months. So that was a massive change to my life. Uh, given you know my normal lifestyle is, I'm not usually at home even more than two weeks in the month. I'm 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 traveling somewhere. So it was an adjustment period, and so you know, I think some of those experiences helping me right now, given the situation. And, um, you know, hopefully it's something that people can keep in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's no fun. You're exactly right. Like there's a lot of uh, craziness going on in the world out there and um, panic definitely doesn't help it at all. Um, so I want to ask one question that, you know, about your journey. You said that you, you were in the tech space for a long time and had this great career and, and were part of being acquired and growing a company and being involved in startups. And most people, you know, unless they've been involved in startups or, you know, been part of an acquisition, they don't turn to angel investing. They just don't look at that as really part of a portfolio unless they know something about that. So what was it that really made you think, hey, maybe angel investing does belong in my portfolio? Well, I mean, just being in Silicon Valley had a lot to do with just constantly being around people that talk about that. That's how companies are built here you know, starts off with angels funding and then venture funding. So that whole world of uh, investing, I've been around it for a while. So just, you know, not necessarily been angel investing, but at least hearing about it and learning about it, you know, since the 
early 2000 days. And, you know, at that time I was more actively investing in the market and getting more education on the public markets. But at the same time, you know, you'd hear all these stories about startups going public. And so that's kind of how I uh, started to learn about stuff is got into the public markets and then started hearing about startups and how that process works. And then, you know, just started getting more involved in stuff just through my own work experience, you know, being in a startup and get it going through that whole process taught me a lot. And then, you know, just constantly learning about it, you know, either being on panels or building relationships with different angel groups or venture capital folks, and just trying to expand my knowledge and my network to get access to, you know, different types of deals. So I'm, I'm actually starting to get more involved with the venture side of things as well uh, in the more recent months. So, you know, I think angel definitely has its place. Uh, but at some point, you also realize there's only so much money and time that you have, and there's only so many deals you can look at as an individual. And so I've actually, uh, I've developed a lot more respect for some of the venture capital work that's being done in the area and, you know, how they look at deals and trying to figure out how to collaborate or participate more in those sort of structures as well, because, you know, there's just no way I can scale and look at the number of deals that that they do. And, and yeah. so, you know, what I've learned over 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 the time is that it does take you to look at a lot of companies and um, look at a lot of deals to find the best ones. And knowing that, you know, a lot of them are either going to lose or break even, not a lot of them are going to make it, even though we'd love to think they will. Yep. It's about trying to find and diversify enough in your portfolio so that you hopefully do have more winners than losers. That's the goal. Based on your just personal experience, Dinesh, how many deals do you typically find that you'll evaluate or look at before you find something that you believe is worthy of being investable? I would probably say not enough. I, I should look at more. I do look at a lot of deals, but it comes in waves. So it's really because I'm, I'm doing it for myself. So I don't, you know, I'm not pushed to keep looking at deals. So I'm not actively going and seeking or so trying to source deals. So it's more stuff that comes to me. And, um, you know, I would say that to look at more deals, I probably need to go and actively source more deals. So I've started to do that more recently by, you know, attending more events and more VC events and things like that, where I get exposure to more deals so that I can do that. But, you know, it's been a, it's been a mixed bag so far. So obviously we're in a, a current situation where the, the world's going through a little bit of a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. For, you know, from a healthcare perspective. And then you've talked about going through your own personal you know, challenges based on like your experience and kind of how you went through that accident. And I know it's a little bit different experience, but well, what, what's your recommendation for, you know, business owners that are out there maybe potentially looking for capital and then obviously with you and your community and your network of investors, what's kind of like the current consensus about, you know, what's going on from an investor perspective? Okay, sure. Both good questions. Um, I think, you know, maybe to back it up a little bit, I think one of the big things that you realize when you do go through an event like what's happening right now or what I went through, you know, 18 months ago is that you really do need to have a diversified set of income streams. Um, and it becomes really apparent and important when you go through something like that, you know, because if you can't work for a while, 
the last thing you want is on top of your health stress is to have financial stress. So, you know, I learned that earlier on and, you know, I've been diversifying income streams for a while, but, you know, I see a lot of business owners have all their eggs in one basket. They have all their money in either their business or in their 401k or stock market. And that's it. Like they don't take the time to get educated on alternate assets or, you know, other things that, that they can they can do to start building multiple income streams. Obviously, you know, your business is really important and you should invest uh, when you get a positive ROI in your business. But it's important to take some percentage of those earnings and start to, you know, spread them into different things because this is the perfect example of it. You know, you can't go to work. If that's the only income stream you have, well, then you're in trouble. So I think that's something that really gets highlighted in a situation like this. And, um, you know, from an investor perspective, I think right now this kind of situation is going to really filter out a lot of companies. You know, it's going to show the companies that really understood that concept of using capital efficiently and, um, you know, were able to keep their expenses in check and, you know, be able to get through a time like this. And unfortunately, a lot of companies are living on the edge, just like a lot of the lot of the consumers are, and it's going to be tough uh, for them to make it unless they've actually taken that, that approach all along. And, you know, if you look at some of the best companies that have been built, they were built in a downturn. So those companies, you know, were built in times where capital was not abundant. And so they had to be very, very efficient with it. And I think that's what investors are, you know, also looking for is, is companies that are that are very efficient with their capital, whether they have it or they don't, right? So either way, it's it's more of a culture and like, you know, how do you actually spend the dollars that you have or that you're gonna take in as for investment? This, this uh, situation that's going on right now is gonna help to highlight, you know, those companies that, you know, had that culture of, you know, being very efficient with their capital. And as an investor, you always want to look for companies that, you know, treat the capital like it's their own money and they run it as a viable longer term business, you know, so that they can survive pretty much any up or down that that happens and uh, have some ability to weather, you know, those storms. And uh, that's what's important, especially in times like this is, you know, companies that have already been functioning like that. And if you look at some of the best companies that were built or started, they came, you know, out of the 2008 uh, downturn and, um, you know, they had to be very capital efficient um, and, you know, to, to get to the scale that they have today. And those are the companies that will, that will be, uh, you know, a good model for current businesses looking to get funded or start, you know, to, to base it on companies like that, that have, that have weathered those storms before or that were started in a in a downturn where it was capital was scarce and you know people are more fearful to deploy capital so they're more, much more conservative in terms of where they where they put their money yep and, um, I, I agree with you 100 percent, dinesh and i think there's two main main reasons why that's the case so the the, the main reasons why the companies that are started during a hard time are the ones that succeed and the first comes down to what you're talking about. Capital is hard to come by. It's hard to raise. It's hard to find people. So the entrepreneurs become scrappy. They become resourceful. 
because they don't have the resources that they need to build it. They can't just go to the loan, the bank and get a loan or, you know, get a million dollar check from somebody just to start an idea. So they have to be very resourceful about that. And I think that breeds into the culture of the company. And the Mm -hmm. second piece, which I think might even be bigger, but it really depends on, you know, the right type of entrepreneur is when you're in a recession, a downturn, a bad economy, or something like this, where coronavirus is forcing everybody and entire, entire states and countries are shutting down and you can't, operate the way you always have, it creates an opportunity for a new normal, right? The, the mm-hmm. society has changed, the economy has changed, the way that we communicate, the way that we do business, the way that we get our, our groceries, everything is changing right now. And mm-hmm. there's going to be those companies that are going to take advantage of this and realize that this could linger on, mm-hmm. or even if it doesn't linger on, there's still going to be a certain you know contingent part of the market that is going to want to do business this way from now on. So if you think about uh, there were companies that I worked with that they would use technology and they would use energy, not the grid, but they would use uh, IoT devices essentially to determine how much of their real estate was actually being used by employees. We're talking Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. And then they realized through these IoT devices and the, the way that the network was set up and the way that the grid and the mesh was set up inside their, their own buildings, only about 80% utilization rate. So 20% of their real estate costs could go away almost overnight and impact the bottom line dramatically and make a, a much more profitable company. So I think that that is what we're going to see. And we're going to see companies fail. And I hate to say it, say it, but we're probably going to see a lot of small businesses fail mm-hmm. as a result of this, this pandemic. Mm-hmm. But we're also going to see some incredible companies and entrepreneurs and even investors rise in the ranks in the next 12, 18, 24, and 36 months once they figure out what is happening and what the new normal is going to be. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes, I would agree uh, 100% with that assessment. Uh, I mean, they say necessity is the mother of all invention, right? That's that's yeah. going to hold very true right now because what's really important is people can adapt and be flexible with the times and, you know, try to try to adjust their their model or whatever it takes to be able to take advantage of what's coming down the road. So mm-hmm. looking ahead, like you said, and you know, um, looking at those opportunities right now is what's gonna determine whether businesses survive or you know, they thrive in the next phase. Yep, and isn't it funny, we're using Zoom right now to record this podcast. And all I could think about when, this, when everything started happening, everybody got quarantined. I've been working remotely for 14 years. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've had my own office, my own house, and I just travel to meet clients and go to events and whatnot. So, this hasn't impacted me directly as much as the rest of the world. I mean, obviously business and the economy and society is impacted. So I I'm a part of that too, but from a work perspective, being isolated hasn't really changed the way that I do things, but wouldn't it have been cool if everybody who's listening to this podcast had invested in this tiny little company called zoom back when no one knew about it and it was a private company. And that's, that's the cool thing about angel investing. And I guarantee you that zoom and, you know, some of those delivery services for groceries and other companies that are, you know, can take advantage of the convenience and the and somewhat to a certain degree, the isolation are going to thrive in the aftermath of this pandemic. I would agree. Yep. I mean, the, the thing about it, the, the challenging part is, you know, to, to see that early enough. And, and, you know, a lot of it is timing and there is an element of luck and also your network to be able to, you know, get access to companies like that. And I know that there's, you know, regulations uh, and changes occurring in regulations to 
allow more investors, more you know, non-accredited investors as well to get access to being able to get into those you know, sort of companies, but it's not quite there yet. But definitely we're seeing more and more changes happen in that space so that there are more uh, people that can get access to to uh, companies like Zoom and the likes, right? That are that are disrupting things, or that that can you know suddenly become uh, overnight uh, you know uh, grow two x three x because of some event that occurs. Um, but it's something that they've been building for a while, and this trend is just going to accelerate moving forward. So the key is to look for you know what are the things happening right now? What are the shifts happening right now that you know a year, two years, three years from now will be Will become the norm, and it is an element of uh, timing and luck. That's I think that's a lot of what it also ends up being. That's why you need to diversify and be able to, you know, make some some good uh, calculated estimations or bets on on certain kinds of companies that you think are going to succeed. Comes down to a lot of different factors um, and macro and micro levels. So kind of have to look at a, a lot of those things when 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 I'm looking at companies. Well, Dinesh, um, I'm curious. I, I got a, a high-level investor friend of mine who sent me some information about the difference between being a peacetime CEO and a wartime CEO. And this was published by Ben Horowitz on, on Andreessen Horowitz. And the leadership changes that are required, you know, in times of uncertainty where we're at, I'm curious to know, like, how you think or what your advice would be shifting from a peacetime CEO where there's been abundance and, and things are kind of free flowing capital wise now going into a lot more scarcity, a lot more challenges ahead and shifting into like a wartime CEO mentality. Is there any advice or things that you might be able to share on how you know small business owners and, and leaders can make that transition? It's an interesting question. I mean, whenever I'm looking at companies, I always definitely look for that as one of the key elements is like, you know, are they already acting like that? And do they treat their capital that way, right? As if it's going to run out so that they're not, you know, spending freely. I mean, there's a balance between having to spend the money to grow the business and, and overspending or even over raising of capital. I've seen, you know, companies go go down because they raise too much money and that can negatively hurt them too. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but it happens a lot in the Valley in Silicon Valley where companies just get way overfunded and, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on them to spend the money because investors want to see that money put to work and it ends up backfiring and they end up, you know, not being able to keep up with the expectations. And it's, it's the downfall of the company is actually taking in too much money. So going back to your question about wartime versus peacetime, I mean, I think it helps to think about the wartime situation when you're in the peacetime. And a lot of people don't do that. So uh, it's hard to kind of suddenly shift uh, when it happens because it's not been part of the culture. So, you know, I would say this is an opportunity for, for all businesses to see, you know, especially ones that were started in the last decade that haven't really seen any kind of a sudden extreme uh, shock to the system or to their business like this one is to is to start getting start really focusing on efficiencies and seeing where they can get more efficient in terms of use of resources use of capital uh, use of technology something like what we're doing right now you know 
using this time to really get educated on on technology and where they can use it to improve efficiency. You know, there's a lot of things that technology can do that that can save you a lot of time and money if done right. And uh, this is in every industry. So I think this this kind of situation forces a lot of that on people, and it's it's a good time to actually you know learn about stuff, go and research stuff in your industry. What kind of tools are there? You know, just this morning I had a call with a company that's developing a tool for for one of the industries I'm in, and you know I had a great one hour uh, demo with them and brainstormed on some ideas and some of the challenges in that space that they can start to address. And uh, if we can get that kind of a software for this particular industry, that that would that would save us a lot of time and and painful work that we're spending, you know, uh, having people do. So those are the things that I see are going to accelerate in this kind of situation. Uh, you know, techno- the use of technology to do everyday tasks and, and solve uh, repetitive, to do repetitive tasks, uh, anything that can be automated. These are all things to, to really look for or to go and seek out during this time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you said a few things in there that I, w- I want to highlight. So, um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of systems and processes and, and systemizing a business. And systemizing doesn't necessarily mean automating, but mm-hmm. whatever you can automate, you do. But you you want to make sure that you systemize at a bare minimum and create those efficiencies within your business so that you can operate leaner, right? And I think when you talk about the dichotomy of over-raising capital and failing businesses, I don't think people really understand that. Um, like, well, because entrepreneurs that come to us, they say, listen, I, I've been trying to raise money and I don't have any money. And so that's why I'm going to fail. And you're saying, well, there's plenty of businesses that raise a lot of money, but they still fail. And my assumption is that they get to a point where they say, well, we have so much money. Let's just go ahead and, you know, burden ourselves with new office space, new furniture. Let's overburden the payroll and, you know, create all these additional costs that are not necessarily driving revenue. And as a result, it doesn't help increase the value of the company. It doesn't really increase the revenue or the bottom line of the company. And it can be the Achilles heel of these hyper growth companies because they think that just getting more capital in the door is going to solve all their problems. And I'd love for you to just kind of speak to that because there's plenty of entrepreneurs out there um, that are thinking, all I need to do is just raise more money and I'll be fine. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. I think it's really important, depending on the phase that you're raising money, um, to understand who you're raising money from, and uh, you know what their expectations are, and and ideally, you know, you want to align yourself with with people that understand what you're trying to do, and you're raising the right kind of capital. Uh, especially earlier on in a business, it can it can really kill you if you raise the wrong kind of capital. So whether it's too much or too little, the point is, you know, just having the wrong investor on, uh, uh, on the team can really hurt a company if, if the investor's goals or, or vision of things is not in alignment. So I know it's, it's, a, it's a real dichotomy because you want to raise money and you, you want to raise it from, you know, whoever you can at that time. But uh, this is you know, a big contributor to why uh, a lot of businesses fail too, because they either don't raise enough or raise too much and they don't line up with the expectations of the investors that are giving them the money. And that's what forces certain harsh decisions, you know, especially in, in the venture cap world, this, this happens quite a bit, you know, they, they'll, they'll overfund or give 
company's money and then they have to start making harsh decisions or doing down rounds on the valuations because you know they were super aggressive in the beginning and the companies couldn't grow fast enough into those valuations so we can probably have a whole other podcast about just that topic and, and valuations of companies and kind of what investors expect and what you know what the entrepreneur as an entrepreneur in the beginning, you think the logical thing is, let me go raise as much money as I can. And, you know, I want to give up as little of my company as I can. Yep. That's kind of the logical way to think. But if you kind of dig further into that, that can actually be more damaging to some companies because you don't necessarily want to overvalue the company very early on, uh, because then it's going to get very hard for you to uh, grow into that valuation. And secondly, it's going to be hard for you to bring in the right investors, especially if you're talking about bringing in any sophisticated or professional or institutional investors down the road, if your valuation's out of whack and you haven't grown into it. So, uh, you know, you start doing stuff like that, then you pretty much hurt your chances to actually raise money down the road. And it's something that most uh, entrepreneurs don't necessarily think about in the beginning because all they're thinking about is their current round or their current need for capital. And so it's important to kind of map out further out from your current needs and assess what are you going to need, you know, 12 to 18 months from now. And, and, you know, also factor that in and only try to raise what you need to get to that point, as opposed to trying to raise, uh, you know, it's always good to have some extra buffer for sure. Like you, you definitely, when, when the money's available, you want to try to get it at, at reasonable terms. But you, you want to keep in mind that you don't want to end up overvaluing yourself too early on and keeping the percentages out of whack in terms of ownership for the investor versus the entrepreneur, mm -hmm. because it becomes much harder to raise capital down the road. Yeah. And, you know, at least in Silicon Valley, there's some, you know, if you're going to grow a company for scale, you're pretty much going to have to get venture capital at some point. At least most companies do, unless they can, you know find a, a way to, to generate enough revenue to fund their scaling. But most of the time in the Valley, the companies that have become really big have gone to venture. And, you know, when you get to into venture capital, they look for certain metrics and they look for, they have some, you know, defined ranges of stuff where they know, you know, in uh, what they're willing to do in like a series A or a series B raise. And so, you know, they look at, who invested in the initial rounds and, you know, what are the terms for that? And, you know, when they see things completely out of whack, they just walk away from the deals because they don't, they just realize that that's not uh, someone that knew what they were doing. So it's really important to get educated earlier on about some of those things and, you know, start uh, building those relationships and start asking the right questions so that, you know, even before you start raising money, you, you kind of have the plan mapped out and, you line things up and you build relationships before you need the capital. I see a lot of people start to do that when they need the capital, but it's like, that's, you know, the time you want to build, you want to be able to take the money when you don't need it. Right. And build relationships with investors when you're not asking them for money. Right. So that when, when you really do need the money, they, they already actually, they're knocking on your door to give you money because they see what you've been doing and you've been, you know, keeping them, in the loop on what you've been doing and getting them excited about it so that at the time that you do need some money, it becomes a lot easier to get it. Yeah. As opposed to trying to start that activity 
when you just realize, oh my God, I'm, I need some money now. So, you know, managing your cash flow and expectations. Seriously wise words right there, man. I hope people are taking notes on this. Yeah, that makes a that makes a huge difference. And then I want to go back to one other thing. I know we're running a little bit low on time here, but I want to go back to one other thing you said, Dinesh, earlier, which was, you know, we're in the midst of a crisis right now, and businesses are shuttering their doors, and you know, people are trying to get a bailout. They're they're trying they're hoping for all these different things. And you said, listen, it's really important that you focus on multiple streams of income. And I believe that's actually the name of a book by Robert Allen years and years ago. Um, multiple streams of income and, and every entrepreneur should have multiple streams of income inside their business. And of course, investors, you want to have multiple streams of income. Everybody in this day and age should have multiple streams of income. And when I'm looking at a business and I, I, I look at our business, right? Angel Investors Network been around since 97. So we've weathered the dot-com boom and bust. We've weathered the financial crisis. Now we're dealing with the coronavirus. And every single time we have to go back and look at our business and figure out, okay, how can we operate in this new world and new economy? And what it comes down to is different distribution channels, different products, different services, and different ways to generate revenue so that you can weather whatever storm might come. And I know from an investment perspective, we're looking at companies and we say, well, how are you generating revenue? If they say we have one product, one flagship product, and that's it. Um, you know, you'll see this on Shark Tank and you'll hear it. And I, I say, and I know our investors say, it's like, you don't have a business, you have a product. Or maybe you're self-employed and you have one service or one product that you're selling. That's not really a business because all it takes is one competitor to come in, one downturn in the economy, one legislative act to put you out of business. And I know that's a risk factor for a lot of investors. And I'm just curious what your take is on when you're looking at a lot, of, especially early stage companies that they don't necessarily even have revenue yet. And they're only trying to build one product. What are you guys looking at from that perspective to make sure that they can weather a storm like this? Well, that's a that's a loaded question because it depends. It's a balance between you want them to be focused, um, but you also want them to be able to see the bigger picture. So yeah, you, you look for really like what are they focusing on now, and what is going to be their next revenue generator, and that should be very clear. And um, you know, and then what are they going to do beyond that to expand on that? So looking at the roadmap and what ideas they have, you know, yeah. to to uh, expand on that. And sometimes those things are going to change along the way. So it's not, you know, no one has a crystal ball. The key is that they're flexible enough to adapt. Yes. And, you know, for example, there might be probably a ton of businesses right now that had to suddenly adapt and shift their business model. You know, Tesla's talking about, you know, using their factories to build ventilators right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how, that's how, how quickly they can adapt because they, they have stuff they've done before, you know, in, in, in building cars that, allows them to have the capability to build other things. And, you know, that's what it takes is having enough flexibility in both your thought process, your mindset, and then also in the company to be able to quickly adapt if things shift. So, yeah, you start off with, okay, I'm going to have this one revenue stream and you focus on and you make it work, but you're building stuff so that you can expand on that. So, you're, 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 you know, that's your baseline. But that you know at some point that you're going to have to adapt or add things to it, unless you're in some you know certain industries that could be that could work where you have like key patents and it's very uh, difficult technology for anyone to copy or you know it's protected in some way and you have some kind of a really strong moat that people can't just take over. 
And there are a lot of companies that have been successful with just one product or service. But again, you know, when things shift, if they don't adapt fast enough, then they get killed, right? So, I mean, you can look at a lot of companies like that, right? Like a Blockbuster is a great example. You know, they had this one basically service and as soon as a disruptive model came, they didn't adapt and they're gone, you know, and they were a massive company at one point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just funny. There's so many different lessons littered throughout history on that ex- exact same idea. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And if you're an early stage investor or you're an entrepreneur, I want you to go back and listen to what Dinesh just said five more times because he put a lot of gems in there um, that I think you guys need to understand. And that's just so valuable for anyone who's either doing due diligence on their own company or doing due diligence on a potential investment. So I appreciate that, Dinesh. Yeah. So we are we are out of time here. So I want to finish up with two last questions for you, Dinesh. Sure. Uh, the first one is, what has been your favorite mistake? One that you've either learned the most from or kind of glad that it happened, didn't like it at the time, but are glad that you came out of it on the other end uh, throughout your career. And the second is, where can people find you and connect with you? Favorite mistake. Those are uh, interesting combination of words. I don't know if I have a favorite mistake. Um, Definitely have made a lot of mistakes along the way. I would say the lesson that I've learned is do as much of, you know, you can trust, but verify as much as you can. A lot of times, you know, I've, my mistake has been, I've trusted too much, not verified enough or gone the other extreme uh, where I've, you know, verified or just kept verifying and then the opportunity is gone. So it's kind of finding that balance where, you know, you trust, but verify and uh, build a good network. You know, I think that's what it comes down to is, you know, the quality of uh, stuff you get involved in. And, you know, you have to have a trusted network of people or colleagues that, that are going to help you to, to filter out some of the mistakes. And it's, it's a work in progress. You know, I've definitely had my share of of bad deals and trusting people that I shouldn't have or, you know, doing it. And sometimes it's just bad luck. You know, you, you do something and it's with good intent. And then someone on the other end just uh, flips a switch and just decides to do something ridiculous or stupid that takes them down the wrong path. So I've had that experience as well. And uh, so there's no crystal ball, but I, I would say definitely, you know, that's probably my, my biggest takeaway has been, you know, trust, but verify and trust the source that you're getting the information from, or, or, you know, where did that relationship or that person come from and try to improve the quality of sources that you, that you get information from. So hopefully that may, that helps. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, I would say for, to get in touch with me. Uh, yeah. I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way uh, to look me up on LinkedIn and, send me a message on LinkedIn or even Facebook Messenger, Dinesh Goba. I'm, I'm on Facebook as well and would be uh, happy to connect and get to know some more awesome people. Awesome. I really appreciate it, Dinesh. This has been a great call, um, great interview. Again, we can go on and talk about all these different little nuances for days probably. <laughs> yeah, I love the comment about, hey, the capital may not be the right capital. Make sure you get the right capital. <laughs> Yeah, I could have. I wanted to dive into that one deep, but we just don't have the time. But maybe, maybe we'll bring you back to Nesh and talk about that a little bit more specifically. Sounds good. Happy to do that. Thanks, awesome. guys. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Eric. You bet. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Nesh. Iraq, any last comments? No, just amazing interview. Great insights, and look up and connect with Nesh on LinkedIn. Then hopefully you can get more words of wisdom. 
Yeah, I'd just like to share before we end, you know, like these are challenging times for everyone and it's very easy to uh, get into the panic. And so, you know, watch what you read and listen to and try to be objective. And trust, but verify, right? Yeah, trust, but exactly. Trust, but verify your sources of information. And, you know, it's obviously, we don't want to stay in a bubble from what's happening in reality right now, but at the same time, panicking doesn't do anything to help us get through the situation and have a have a good experience of it. Either way, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So the way I look at it is how can I make my experience better? And you know that that goes back to like what am I reading? What am I watching? And then how am I interpreting that information and you know and what am I doing with it so that I can have a positive experience? Am I am I stepping up and sharing good information with people or am I just, you know, kind of hunkering down and going into a cave and stressing out. Yep. So it's really important to watch how you, how, you know, how your, your mind or where your mind takes you during this time and, and try to increase your level of awareness of that so that you can start to expand and, you know, not contract because in order to grow and to find new opportunities, it's always important to have your mind in a place where it's expanding and not contracting. Absolutely. Love that. Thank you so much, Dinesh. I really do appreciate it. Stay safe out there, Iraq. Have a great time. Yeah. You stay safe where you are, and uh, we'll continue operating from our, our own self-quarantines, and uh, we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions with your host, Jeff Barnes, brought to you by the Angel Investors Network. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Go to www.angelnetwork.com for tools, resources, show notes, and more, as well as our free training on how to become a successful angel investor and entrepreneur. 